0: This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County.
1: We interviewed Dr. Richard Gunderman, who is a professor of radiology, pediatrics, medical education, philosophy, liberal arts, philanthropy, and medical humanities at Indiana University. Gunderman has a background in public health and has taught a couple of courses on the opioid epidemic at IU. Gunderman said he wanted to teach these courses because he became interested in the wide-ranging impacts of the opioid epidemic on the American public.
2: Hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps more in the United States, have lost their lives over the course of the opioid epidemic going back into the 1990s. And, uh, you know, in addition to the deaths, which are very sad a lot of people's lives have been adversely affected. You know, people have lost jobs, uh, families have broken up, people have ended up incarcerated uh, because of opioids. And so we read the stories of people's lives who've been powerfully affected by opioids, the effect on their families, their communities, and tried to understand uh, what some of the underlying causes might be of the opioid epidemic. Uh, you know, one would be doctors prescribe too many opioids, but another one might be that many of us Americans felt that something was missing in our lives, you know, that there was a kind of gap or, or absence in the lives we were leading, and some turned to opioids in an attempt to fill that hole. And I think that, that turns out to be a bad idea in just about every case.
1: Gunderman said that his interest in the opioid crisis stemmed from reading several books that outlined how the epidemic impacted communities across the country.
2: Yeah, I would actually commend a couple of books, uh, one of which I think devotes about three chapters to Muncie, Indiana. But uh, those books are Dreamland, and I think the least of these, uh, both by Sam Quinones, a a journalist who first got interested in the so-called black tar heroin epidemic— uh, heroin being supplied by uh, certain areas of Mexico uh, to users in the United States. And then the second book, uh, The Least of These, focuses on the more recent problems of, uh, uh, of new opioids like fentanyl uh, that are hundreds of times more powerful than morphine, and then drugs like methamphetamines to try to understand You know, what is it about us Americans in the late 20th century and early 21st century that might make us susceptible to those kinds of drugs? Because, as you know, uh, the opioid epidemic is, to an amazing extent, an American phenomenon. Uh, Certainly, you have, you know, opioid users and and addicts in other parts of the world, but it seems to have hit our country particularly hard, and it really hit the Midwestern United States particularly hard. I think uh, leaders in opioid deaths per capita included states like West Virginia and uh, Ohio, and uh, particularly the western half of Pennsylvania, and unfortunately, Indiana is a state that was hit relatively hard by uh, the opioid epidemic as well. So one thing I admire about Sam Quinones' books is that he doesn't just focus on, you know, public health statistics, uh, the number of opioid prescriptions written, or the number of people who show up in their emergency rooms with opi- uh, opioid overdoses, or the numbers of people who are dying uh, from them. But he also thinks a lot about the individuals uh, who become addicted to opioids. And, uh, you know, as I say, its effects on their families and communities. And he does so, I think, in a a dispassionate way, certainly not looking to condemn such people, but I think also in a way that uh, helps us at least understand more deeply the challenges people are facing in life that might predispose them to opioid addiction.
1: He touched on some of the potential root causes of the opioid crisis and why it adversely affected the Midwest in particular.
2: One of my colleagues at Riley Hospital for Children is from Portsmouth, Ohio, which is the town in southern Ohio uh, where Dreamland is set, that first book I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that was once a thriving part of the industrial belt of the United States, but. In the 60s and 70s, a lot of jobs were lost, industries left town, Uh, you know, people became unemployed, and, uh, you know, it wasn't so much that they couldn't put food on the table, because I think social welfare programs, in many cases, uh, help to keep people alive, so to speak. But, you know, let's face it, work uh, is an important source of meaning in people's Mm -hmm. lives, Uh, and when you don't have a job, you have a lot of time on your hands. You're not seeing the people, your colleagues that you normally see at work. Uh, These days with things like cell phones and social media, uh, you know, we're probably spending more time alone than uh, we used to. And I think uh, Quinones, the author of Dreamland, uh, concludes that really one of the principal causes of the opioid epidemic was probably widespread loneliness. As I say, people with a kind of absence in their lives, a a gap that they didn't know how to fill. You know, they didn't have work anymore. They maybe uh, social institutions like, say, churches or civic organizations were in decline. Um, You spend a lot of time by yourself. You know, some people find themselves, I don't know, drinking a lot of beer or turning to alcohol in one form or another. But at least at that time, a lot of people were turning to opioids And the big difference, well, there are many big differences, but one big difference between those two is that, uh, you know, no doctor is going to prescribe a beer or Mm -hmm. a a shot of whiskey. But beginning in the 1990s, doctors began prescribing opioids in in much uh, larger numbers. And, you know, it turned out that some small percentage of people for whom opioids were prescribed for whatever reason, discovered that they liked opioids and uh, kept taking them to the point they became addicted. And unfortunately, one of the proper properties of opioids is that people who take them regularly develop tolerance, you know, where they need a, a higher dose to avoid getting withdrawal symptoms. So over time, people are using more and more opioids, which of course are fairly expensive. And, uh, you know, you have a whole illicit market spring up, both around prescription drugs, drugs we've all heard of, like, say, oxycodone, and uh, also illicit forms of opioids, like heroin and, and fentanyl and so forth.
1: The opioid epidemic has impacted large demographics across the U.S. Gunderman provided a breakdown of various segments of the population that the crisis has affected.
2: Boy, that's a really complex subject, but let me give two examples of demographics that appear to be more susceptible to opioid addiction. and one is adolescents. So young people, you know, you might have a high school cheerleader or a football player, let's say, who's injured, and, uh, you know, a back injury, a shoulder injury, and a perfectly well-meaning physician in the emergency room or, you know, the family practice office knows that opioids can be pretty effective for uh, acute pain, you know, pain that has developed suddenly and we think is going to go away in a a matter of days or weeks. So they prescribe opioids, and uh, for whatever reason, adolescents uh, seem to have somewhat increased propensity uh, to become addicted to them. And I I suspect that might be because at least many of us in adolescence, uh, you know, our brains haven't... Fully matured, it seems like that occurs around age 25. Uh, so we may be more susceptible to, to new influences we're subjected to. But another factor would be uh, that we, you know, maybe don't have life figured out quite as much as somebody in their 20s and 30s. And, you know, if, if these opioids help to relieve some anxiety or, you know, make it possible to get to sleep easier. <laughs> Uh, we may may tend to become reliant on them. And then another group, and, you know, this is painting with very broad Mm brushstrokes, but another group that seems to be more susceptible to opioids is uh, women. Mm -hmm. And, again, why might that be true? But, you know, women tend to report chronic pain at higher levels. And uh, uh, another factor may (laughs) simply be that women are more willing to uh, admit that they have a problem with opioids. Because, of course, a lot of this data is derived from surveys. And, you know, it's possible that men are less willing to admit that they do have such a problem, you know, that they d- developed kind of a, a dependence on those medicines or drugs. But for whatever reason, those are two groups that seem to be uh, more susceptible. But, you know, a big problem was uh, an adolescent goes to get their wisdom teeth re- removed their oral surgeon-prescribed opioids, and, you know, I'm not saying that in itself is bad, but now that we understand that some people are pretty susceptible uh, to developing addiction to opioids, I'm happy to say that in medicine and and dentistry, oral surgery, and so forth, we're prescribing fewer opioids because we've been alerted uh, to their tremendous addiction potential. Like. If somebody comes into the emergency room with a kidney stone which can be a very very painful condition uh there's an effort to treat them with pretty high doses of a drug like ibuprofen you know which is Mm -hmm. non-addictive and not dangerous in the same way that opioids are and that way a lot of people aren't exposed to opioids in the first place and you know never discover that they might have a susceptibility to addiction
0: He explained that back in the 1990s, the medical field didn't know how harmful opioids could be to patients, and shared how they came to prescribe opioids so frequently was due to a push to treat a patient's pain as if it were a vital sign.
2: We didn't understand how hazardous these drugs are back in the 1990s. And in fact, there was a pretty well-coordinated effort by companies that market opioids Perhaps the most uh, best-known example being Purdue Pharma. By the way, Purdue Pharma has nothing to do with Purdue University, except they share the same name. But, you know, Purdue Pharma was reaching out to pain specialists and other kinds of physicians, trying to get them to prescribe more opioids. And we ended up in a very uh, regrettable situation in medicine, we're the organization that accredits U.S. hospitals, you know, that says, hey, you're a good hospital, you're eligible for reimbursement for health care by the federal government and so forth. Uh, The organization that does that actually around the year 2000 decided that we should regard pain as the fifth vital sign. You know, vital signs are things like pulse rate, breathing rate, blood pressure, temperature. Well, they wanted to add pain as the fifth vital sign, And basically said, any patient who comes into the hospital, uh, their pain needs to be evaluated. And, uh, you know, if if they say they're in significant pain, you need to treat it. So all of a sudden, a lot of doctors and hospitals uh, were, were assessing pain a lot more. And if a patient said they were in a significant degree of pain, in many cases, the easiest thing to do was just to write them a prescription for opioids, And, you know, that that may be a kind of shortcut in some cases. Maybe we should try to understand more deeply uh, the degree of the patient's pain, the nature of their pain, what's making it hard for them to cope with the pain. You know, if there's something else we could do about the pain other than prescribe an opioid. But back in the 1990s and early 2000s, Many healthcare professionals found it easier just to go ahead and prescribe the opioid. You know, patients are happy. They've gotten a drug they can't get for themselves in the uh, pharmacy. Uh, you know, the physician can move on to the next patient. Everybody can tell the hospital and the people who accredit hospitals uh, that, you know, they, they did just what they were supposed to. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, again, that sort of shortcut. Uh, to solving the problem quickly, I think, ended up putting a lot of patients in a very vulnerable and uh, really dangerous position. And of course, many lives were ruined and people lost their lives because they they started taking opioids.
0: Gunnerman shared how some individuals who have become addicted to their prescribed opioid medication might turn to using illicit opioids from unregulated sources once their prescription has run out.
2: Again, there are many, many, many different stories, and I don't want to claim they all have uh, the same theme, but, you know, basically, let's say I'm prescribed oxycodone because I've got terrible low back pain or, you know, I just had dental work. Pretty soon I become addicted to oxycodone. Uh, My doctor says, gee, I worry you might develop an addiction. I'm not going to prescribe any more of this. Well, maybe I go to another doctor or maybe I start going to a number of different doctors and hospital emergency room, but perhaps eventually I'm not able to get that prescription uh, again. So then I turn to illicit drugs that are available on the street. And, of course, at one point you could buy heroin more cheaply than you could buy oxycodone. So a lot of people began uh, getting their fix, so to speak, or, you know, sustaining their their addiction, avoiding withdrawal through the use of illicit drugs. And, uh, you know, for a while, uh, uh, you could be fairly confident about the amount of the drug you were purchasing, but with the introduction of drugs like fentanyl and carfentanil, which as I said, can be hundreds of times more powerful than morphine, all of a sudden, uh, people buying opioids don't know how much of the drug is in, uh, you know, a dose they're going to administer to themselves. And, you know, they give themselves too much. Unfortunately, opioids in high doses can suppress the respiratory system. Mm -hmm. People stop breathing and basically suffocate to death. So, you know, if my doctor cuts off my prescription for oxycodone or or for whatever reason I can't obtain illicit opioids anymore, I face the frightening prospect of withdrawal, which, you know, makes people feel like they have a bad case of the flu, and maybe even worse in many cases, so, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to stop. And if if people just say, well, you've got to stop, it's not good for you, uh, and I'm facing withdrawal, uh, many people find themselves in a pretty desperate situation. So, again, we kind of short-circuited good medical care uh, by, you know, I'm not going to feed your addiction anymore, but as to what you should do to get through what could be a very painful withdrawal, that's up to you. You know, hopefully we now have uh, drugs that can, that can uh, uh, help people reduce their dependency on opioids uh, you know, over a longer period of time so people don't experience an acute withdrawal syndrome. But you know, again, that's, that, that's an important thing, but it may be too superficial in many cases, we need to ask ourselves, well, what was wrong with my life in the first place? What was I missing in the first place that made me susceptible to opioid addiction? Maybe what I need in addition to drug treatment is, you know, job trainings uh, or, uh, you know, uh, somebody to give me a good set of clothes so I could go for job interviews or, you know, uh, somebody to help provide child care so I could be out of the house. Uh, for a number of hours each day and, and hold a job. And we just tried to treat a drug problem as purely a drug problem. And, you know, no drug problem is ever a simple drug problem. There's always a much more complex story behind it. And uh, we doctors and other healthcare p- professionals need to be reminded of that from time to time. We're so used to prescribing medications. Uh, But sometimes, you know, people need uh, the help that, let's say, social workers provide or maybe even the chaplains provide. But it's not the case that we doctors always have the answer. And if we only think with our prescription pads, in many cases, we're going to be doing our patients uh, at least inadequate service and maybe even a disservice.
0: When asked what he thinks the settlement funds should be used for, Gunderman said that there is not one solution, but we need to address the root causes of this epidemic, not just the symptoms. I think
2: one thing we need to recognize is that each uh, person who struggles with addiction, opioid use disorder, uh, each person's story is somewhat different, and there's simply not a one-size-fits-all solution. And I further think... That we can't again treat this drug problem as simply as a drug as a simple drug problem you know when will we learn that a drug problem is never simply a drug problem Uh, we really need to help people uh, if Sam Quinones is right we need to help people with the problem of loneliness with the problem of purposelessness how can we help people uh, who've lost part of the purpose in their life. You know, maybe they've lost their job. Maybe their children have grown up and moved away. Maybe they've gotten a divorce. Who knows? But how can we help people dealing with things like, uh, loneliness and a sense of purposelessness, uh, recover a sense of purpose and become re-engaged more deeply with other people. And you can certainly do things with money, uh, you know, good rehabilitation programs and so forth. But uh, probably what we need in part is simply to try to build better communities. And, you know, money money's useful. Maybe we can buy new nets for the basketball court, you know, or buy some supplies for an art and crafts course or something like that. But I, I think the problem isn't primarily a financial one. It's primarily a one of, of restoring the vitality of of neighborhoods and communities so we feel more connected to each other and ideally uh, those of us who want it can find uh, work to do outside the home you know which in some cases may be volunteer work again it's not always necessary to be paid but i need to wake up in the morning knowing somebody's counting on me uh, that this day has some purpose and uh, unfortunately there are a lot of people in our midst for whom that that, that's not the case, at least at the moment. But he once asked Mother Teresa, uh, you know, now St. Teresa of Calcutta. This was decades ago, but she was asked, uh, you know, Mother, what can I do to promote world peace? Her answer was go home and love your children. Um, we need to remember that uh, we can all do something. You know, none of us can appropriate a billion dollars for a drug rehabilitation program. But we can all do something in our own families, in our own neighborhoods. You know, we could, I don't know, lead a troop of Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or coach a youth soccer team or uh, uh, teach Sunday school. You know, the number of possibilities is almost endless. But there's something each of us can do to help to rebuild our communities and, and my feeling is that's addressing the real root cause of something like the opioid crisis, which is, you know, a sign or a symptom, as we would say in medicine, uh, that something's wrong with our, with our communities, with the social part of our lives. And uh, I, I think it's, it's a mistake to think this can only be solved in Washington or you know by the people at the National Institutes of Health or Centers for Disease Control. Each of us can make some small contribution uh, to to rebuilding our communities and helping to prevent uh, this sort of thing from happening to other people.
0: Gunnerman also said that the solution to our overdose epidemic is not going to be found in a prescription book. He suggested that to help make national societal changes to address addiction disorders, we need a local focus.
2: I think the real solution to that problem is uh, what I might call vitamin L, a word that physicians and other health professionals tend to use uh, very rarely. You know, we've got vitamin A and B and C and D and K and so forth, but uh, I would like to suggest there's also a vitamin L, a word not commonly heard in medicine, but that word is love. If we could, (laughs) it sounds crazy, but if we could Uh, get to know one another better and love one another a little bit more, I think we would go a long way, not only to addressing problems like the opioid crisis, but, you know, addiction crises in general, things like what we used to call alcoholism and other big social ills that we're afflicted with today. For example, the, the problem with firearms and violence in general if we could cultivate a little bit more love in our relationships, our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, you can't do it nationally or internationally. Uh, you know, you could wish that were true, but while you're thinking globally, act locally, you know? Do something in the sphere of your own daily life. And uh, if enough of us would do that, I think we could make a real difference.
1: WFHB News interviewed Executive Director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance Nick Voiles, last year. Boyle said the key to keeping people who use drugs meaningfully connected in their communities is to treat every person regardless of their circumstance or condition with dignity and respect.
3: You know, for people who use drugs are, live in a constant state of stigma and shame. Uh, and there's not too many places they feel safe or can be safe at. What we do at the Indian Recovery Alliance is we offer them a place to have a little bit of love and a little bit of dignity. So a person comes in and they come and get our services and maybe they got a horrible day maybe the world's just you know laid one on them they know that when they come there for one small moment you know they get dignity love and respect that might be in the form of a hug that might be in the form of a couple waters kind words you know and we working there have to think that with this current global pandemic that we're under that we might not see that person again that this might be the last point or the last place, they receive the love and dignity that they so deserve for anyone. It's been a point of pride, you know, coming from lived experience uh, in drug use.
1: outlined that there's a societal stigma when it comes to substance use that comes with labeling, stereotyping, and discrimination. He said that the work he does, in part, pushes back against the sense of judgment.
3: I think by the very act of us being here, pushes back against that stigma. But how we do it as an organization is, when you walk into our place, looks like a living room. You know? No person, regardless of who or what stage of their use or of their chaotic living conditions, is treated any different from the other? We try to work with people to, to change those broken narratives, you know, to disrupt them, to uh, reinvigorate them with the power. You know, uh, I think one of our key points is, you know, sometimes when we do policy. We take people with us to legislation. We, we offer people who use drugs payment for services that they render, you know, through a with uh, think we call low threshold employment, and I think that. The idea of demolishing stigma has to come from the uh, community as a whole. And we can show by by what we do, services we offer, and the environment we provide, that this can be done, and that the outcomes are positive.
1: Boyle said that the Indiana Recovery Alliance wants to give power back to the drug user, and he said that the only way to do that is by treating people with dignity and offering a sense of radical love.
3: We want to give power back to the drug user. We want to enable this each person who's in substance use and having substance use issues to feel empowered in his own recovery to feel empowered to make positive changes that you know may not look real real shiny to some people, but we've seen the evidence you know the science is behind the harm reduction and uh hopefully both politically and uh You know, through community-based organization, we can change the landscape of how we treat drug users. You know, that drug user might be someone's mother, brother, son, daughter. That we all deserve just a little bit of respect and a whole
1: lot of radical love. We will continue to look into the opioid crisis next week on Deep Dive, WFHB, and Limestone Post Investigate. Stay tuned.